Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 3rd of November 1923 and the city is spiralling out of control. Thousands of people throng the streets, fighting with each other, fists and bottles flying. At crowded intersections, striking members of the police force taunt the few constables who are still doing their duty. Inside the besieged town hall, men sign up for a militia. Armed with batons, they're eager to start cracking heads. Behind closed doors in the parliament, politicians fear that this riot could become a revolution. Then, just before sunset, the last loyalist police abandoned their posts. There's a cacophony of screams and shattering glass as the shop front windows of a landmark store are smashed. Rioters are now looters and the madness spreads like a contagion. Store after store is plundered and the mob fights amongst itself for the spoils on streets awash with blood. This isn't a brown shirt uprising in Weimar, Germany or a counter-Bolshevist coup attempt in Russia. We're in Melbourne, where a police strike has triggered days of larrikinism that are about to climax in a night of lawlessness. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. Being a cop is a tough and sometimes thankless job. But in the 21st century, Victoria's police are well-paid and enjoy good conditions. Officers start on a salary of $65,000 per year, get nine weeks leave and receive other generous benefits. When they retire, they can look forward to superannuation and a pension. Put simply, their service is appreciated by politicians, the press and the people. But turn back the clock and things were very different. After the founding of the force in 1853, Victorian police weren't treated well at all. 
They worked long hours, had few days off, were poorly paid, and they even had to buy their own uniforms. At least by the turn of the century, they were entitled to a pension upon retirement. Then, in 1902, this right to a pension was withdrawn for new recruits. Twenty years later, the grievances of Victorian police had really piled up. They got only one Sunday off per month, were entitled to few holidays, and were paid significantly less than their counterparts in New South Wales. Unmarried constables had to live in a city barracks. Nine or ten men forced to share rooms less habitable than the stables enjoyed by police horses. The confirmation of a new chief commissioner, Alexander Nicholson, in April of 1922, made matters worse. He was 59, almost at retirement age, and a veteran administrator who'd spent most of his career in the country. Chief Commissioner Nicholson was out of touch with the city constabulary and unsympathetic to their complaints. Distancing himself further from the rank and file, he cancelled the regular conferences his predecessor had conducted with police superintendents. But his most damaging move came in November 1922. That was when he set up a system of four special supervisors to secretly monitor beat cops as they went about their duties. Drawn from the police ranks, these men were given the derogatory nickname Spooks. That's because the spooks haunted ordinary constables, skulking around in plain clothes to spy on them. They filed reports against men who turned up late to their posts, drank on the job, or consorted with criminal elements. Not that these weren't serious infractions, but the Victorian police already had a disciplinary body that the men respected. What they hated was being spied on, not least by spooks who themselves were of questionable integrity. One man was Commissioner Nicholson's brother-in-law, while another himself had a history of being drunk on the job. The police complained about the spooks, but no one listened, any more than they listened to their grievances about pay, pensions and conditions. Politicians, press and the public, no one seemed to care, and the Victorian Police Association, who were supposed to represent the men, were ineffectual advocates. All in all, it was a miserable time to be a cop in Melbourne. No one hated police conditions more passionately than 34-year-old constable William Thomas Brooks. Born in 1889 in Port Melbourne, he had joined the force in 1911. Since then, he had enjoyed a solid career and, from 1921, worked plainclothes in licensing, busting the sly grog shops then thriving in Melbourne. Constable Brooks was a good cop. Never disciplined, he had received three commendations for his work. A family man, he had married Mary in 1915 and the couple was raising two small children, Alice and Eric, in a house in South Yarra. Things started to go wrong for Constable Brooks in February 1923, when Chief Commissioner Nicholson purged him and 16 other men from the licensing branch. There was no suggestion of dereliction of duty or corruption or anything else. Without explanation, Constable Brooks found himself back in uniform and again pounding the beat in Melbourne. Investigating his demotion, he found that Chief Commissioner Nicholson had said he'd outlived his usefulness in licensing duties. Aggrieved, Constable Brooks and another colleague started a petition to redress the rank and file's more general complaints. They demanded the removal of the spooks, reinstatement of police pensions and pay equal to that enjoyed by their peers in New South Wales. That the petition was addressed to comrades and fellow workers 
would have worried conservatives who, in the wake of the Russian Revolution, were concerned by even the faintest whiff of Bolshevism. Whether it was coincidence or retaliation by Chief Commissioner Nicholson, Constable Brooks was soon after transferred to the coastal city of Geelong and then to even more remote Colac. This was nearly 100 miles from where he lived, making life extremely difficult for the man who was a father to small children and who was on duty six or even seven days a week and often called on to do shift work. Adding insult to injury, Constable Brooks was ordered to work in Colac's licensing branch. Understandably angered, he refused duty and was charged with insubordination. At his public court hearing in Melbourne, which was heavily reported in the newspapers, Constable Brooks was prosecuted by Inspector Thomas Kane. In his defence, he argued that he had refused the order to go on licensing duty because the Chief Commissioner had personally determined he was no longer fit for that sort of police work. Called to testify, Chief Commissioner Nicholson was combative and evasive as to what he'd actually meant by this. Constable Brooks beat the charge and was greeted outside the court by a cheering crowd of his comrades. He'd made himself something of a hero and made enemies in the Chief Commissioner and Inspector Kane. Resuming uniform beat patrol duties in the city, it wasn't long before Constable Brooks found himself the victim of a spook. On a July morning at 6.15am, having finished his night shift a quarter of an hour earlier, he was awaiting his relief, who was running late. Seeing this day shift man approach, Constable Brooks hopped on a tram to go home. But he was seen by a spook, who wrote him up for deserting his post because technically he'd left before the other man had arrived. Constable Brooks was fined five shillings, and when he appealed, the chief commissioner told him the fine wouldn't be imposed if he kept his nose clean for six months. Again, at least circumstantially, this looked like Constable Brooks was being pressured to back down on his petition. But he kept it circulating, amassing over 700 signatures. On Wednesday the 31st of October, Melbourne was filling up with visitors from all around the state and country. The Spring Racing Carnival was about to get started with Derby Day that Saturday. The big one, Melbourne Cup, was set for the following Tuesday. But police weren't in a celebratory mood. Their anger boiled over that day after a special supervisor wrote up two constables for a minor infraction. By that night, which fittingly was Halloween, Melbourne's police were finally fed up with the spooks. Constable William Brooks made sure of it. Just before the city's night shift was due to begin, he stoked 28 of his fellow police into righteous indignation against the spooks and urged them all to go out on strike. The roll was called just before 10pm, with the men expected to parade before going out on the street. But Constable Brooks and his 28 comrades refused duty. They were on strike, they said, until the spooks were withdrawn. Constable Brooks's familiar foes, Chief Commissioner Nicholson and Inspector Kane, met with him and the men. These top cops offered to withdraw the special supervisors from duty that night and to consider the matter further at a later date. The strikers refused. The spooks had to be unconditionally and permanently withdrawn. You cannot beat me to my knees by a sudden threat like this, Chief Commissioner Nicholson told them. If you go on strike tonight, not one of you men will get back into the police force. 
He also threatened that they would be replaced by loyal citizens. But Constable Brooks and his mutineers weren't backing down. Now Inspector Kane chimed in, saying that Victorian police had had it far worse in the days of old. That approach only angered the men, with one constable saying, conditions here are worse than they are in Prussia. And when Inspector Kane claimed that the spooks had also written good reports about the men, he was howled down by a roar of derisive laughter. Changing tack, he tried to divide the men by saying strike leaders didn't have their interests at heart. Constable Brooks, who'd been voted as the men's unofficial representative, replied, The men are solid, and more men will be out tomorrow. Chief Commissioner Nicholson then summoned 100 recruits to take over the night shift. When these men arrived at headquarters, they joined the strikers. Now Chief Commissioner Nicholson conceded. The spooks would be unconditionally withdrawn for the night. The matter would be raised with the state cabinet and the police would be able to represent themselves to the government. Temporarily mollified, Constable Brooks and his men resumed work at 12.30am and the crisis appeared over. The next morning, a headline in Melbourne's The Sun News Pictorial read, Police on strike, swift blow left city unprotected. The accompanying report was sympathetic. It began, Disgusted with what they regard as the spying and harassing methods of the supervising seniors known as spooks, the Metropolitan Policeman refused to go on duty last night. But ominously, it also noted that for two and a half hours, Melbourne had only been protected by a few plainclothes officers. On the afternoon of Thursday the 1st of November, Constable Brooks met with Chief Commissioner Nicholson and the Premier, Harry Lawson. For 45 minutes, he was able to plead the case of the police and even raise his own personal grievances about how he'd been treated by the spooks. The Premier responded by saying he would take the spooks question to the Cabinet and return with its decision. Just before 6pm, Constable Brooks came back for the verdict. Premier Lawson now told him that the government stood by Chief Commissioner Nicholson, that it would not tolerate any strike and that it would only receive complaints from the police at a later time. The state leader asked Constable Brooks to advise the men to go back to work. A few hours later, before the night shift was due to start, Chief Commissioner Nicholson spoke to about 50 city police in the barracks mess hall. He received a bitter reception, with the men shouting him out of the room. The Victorian Police Association's president and secretary were also jeered. But Constable Brooks was welcomed warmly. It is entirely in your hands, he told the men. Are we going back on duty? No, they thundered. Then we stand as a loyal body, he concluded. Loyal to each other, that was, not to the government. After midnight, the Premier, the Chief Commissioner and the Victorian Police Association put one last offer to the men. If they returned to work, there would be no victimisation and they would all keep their jobs. The men refused. The Chief Commissioner dismissed all the men on the spot. It was an unprecedented move. In an instant, four dozen police had been verbally sacked. The angry men poured abuse on the man who had, until seconds ago, been their boss. There were cries of, what about we go spook hunting, and much worse besides. Hearing this news, police at North Melbourne and Carlton stations also went on strike. 
To swell the ranks of the strikers, Constable Brooks and his comrades took a taxi to other suburban stations to convince more men to refuse their duty. Premier Lawson and his ministers met with Constable Brooks and the strikers again. The government refused to renew the offer that striking police who went back to work would keep their jobs. Premier Lawson's final word was to urge loyal members of the force to do their duty. Constable Brooks was every bit as steadfast. At a meeting at Temperance Hall, to the cheers of about 700 men, he said it was the government that had to yield. There will be no more resolutions, he said. When Friday night fell, hundreds of city and metropolitan police were on strike. Melbourne was protected only by a thin contingent of plainclothes officers, loyal uniformed constables and pensioner police who had been recalled to duty. On picket lines in the centre of the city, strikers taunted these men with cries of scabs. Strikers circulated a pamphlet that described the scab as being lower than the rattlesnake, toad and vampire, shunned both by God and the devil, and a more abominable traitor than Judas Iscariot. A scab is a two-legged animal with a corkscrew sole, a water-sogged brain and a combination backbone made of jelly and glue, the pamphlet read. Where other people have their hearts, he carries a tumour of rotten principles. Scabs, it said, were never forgotten, and the men who scabbed would never live down their shame. At the corner of Swanston and Burke Streets, one such scab, a pensioner constable directing traffic, was suddenly surrounded by hundreds of angry people. This crowd drew curious onlookers and quickly got much larger, with cars and trams unable to move. Fearing for his safety, the old cop retreated into a shop. When police reinforcements arrived, the unruly mob turned on them, screaming insults, and the men fled to the town hall police depot for safety. The horde yelled threats and obscenities at the bolted door and planned to smash their way in to get at the police sheltering inside. A massive crowd gathered. When a constable appeared to try to talk sense to the rabble, he was pelted with eggs and beat a hasty retreat back inside. Eggs, a thug yelled. That's nothing. It'll be bottles tomorrow. Suddenly, the depot door flew open to reveal a line of police with batons at the ready. The crowd howled and rushed forward, only to be hit by a high-pressure blast of water from a constable wielding a fire hose in the doorway. Pushed back 20 yards, the multitude gathered its courage again and rushed forwards as the cops slammed the door. Come out and fight, hooligans taunted. Inside the town hall, Inspector Kane was reassuring the press that the city would be protected by the large number of police coming from the country by train. When some of these men arrived, they were booed by the crowds. Scabs! Mongrels! chanted the mob, who tried to block them from entering the town hall depot. At the corner of Russell and Little Collins Streets, a squad of ten uniformed constables was menaced by a crowd hooting and throwing missiles. Police patience cracked. Into them and let them have it, the cops urged each other as they charged the crowd with their batons. By 9.30pm on Burke Street, opposite the Tivoli Theatre, hundreds of people watched illegal coin games being played. About an hour later, two inspectors appeared amid the crowd outside the besieged town hall. The horde pressed in. One uniformed cop stumbled and the mob looked like it was going to overwhelm them. 
but the police fought them off with their Malacca canes. Then, about 25 baton-wielding cops rushed out of the town hall depot and drove the crowd north and south. The Sun newspaper reported, The police singled out the most disorderly ones and batons were freely used. As the constables hit, yells of pain rose. The batons cracked against heads and men fell to the ground. For the next hour, little groups of police patrolled Swanson Street, breaking up mobs and administering summary punishment. But it wasn't only loyalist cops who held back the mob. On many occasions, the better natures of striking police saw them help suppress the crowd and, in one instance, rescue the loyal policemen who were their sworn scabbing enemies. By midnight, Melbourne was quiet again and by 1am, the police had full control of the streets. On Saturday morning, the Sun News pictorial headline read, Police still on strike. Underworld surges out. Mob tried to rule. Surprised when strikers wouldn't let it. Many saw heads. While the police had restored order overnight, ominous excitement grew in Melbourne that Saturday. Crowds poured into the city, thrilled not just by Derby Day, but by the prospect of a carnival atmosphere of chaos. All day at the town hall, clerks enrolled men as special constables. After taking an oath, they were issued armbands that read special and equipped with batons. When batons ran out, they were given axe or broom handles or lengths of solid rubber cut from sulky tyres. Should there be further unrest, these specials would support the police. Meanwhile, country cops were still pouring into the city. They have been arriving all day since 10 o'clock this morning, a sergeant told the Herald, and all as tough as stringy bark and keen as mustard. By mid-Saturday afternoon, the intersection of Burke and Swanston Streets was packed with strikers, larrikins and curious civilians. Strikers encouraged police constables still on duty to join the mutiny, and those who did were cheered by the crowd. Those who didn't were booed and abused. At 3.30pm, only three police constables remained on duty on the corner. Even when a dozen uniformed reinforcements arrived, the small cluster of cops faced a threatening crowd of more than 2,000 people, and it was growing bigger every minute. Jostled and harassed, several more police defected. So far, the abuse directed at them hadn't been that serious. But that changed just after 5pm, when a hooligan broke from the crowd and punched a constable in the face. The police now charged, scattering the crowd, smashing the man with their batons. He went down unconscious and bleeding and was dragged into a car by his comrades, who drove off shouting threats at the police. This abuse echoed by the angry mob. Realising their predicament was hopeless, by 6pm the police had either defected or retreated to Russell Street headquarters. Melbourne's busiest intersection was now at the mercy of an uncontained, unruly mob. Up on an awning, a Herald photographer captured the astounding scene of Burke and Swanston Streets jammed with men, a tram trapped among them with hooligans on its roof. The tram driver was abused. Are you going to work while your brothers fight? demanded a ruffian. But any Russian-style class consciousness evaporated as this hooligan succumbed to the temptation to jump from the tram and smash a random comrade over the head with a beer bottle. 
Pulling the tram from its tracks, larrikins tried unsuccessfully to set it on fire. The vehicle was rescued by tram men, set back on its tracks and managed to depart under a shower of stones. Any veranda, as well as the roofs of cars and trams, became what the Herald called miniature grandstands for crowds to watch the unfolding spectacle. In a surreal touch, as the unrest grew, a funeral procession passed slowly, with some brawlers taking off their hats in respectful truce for a moment or two before they resumed bashing the hell out of each other. The mood got far uglier when hundreds of drinkers left city pubs under the six o'clock closing laws and joined the anarchy. Many had prepared for battle by taking beer bottles with them from the hotel bars. Look out, someone shouted as a bottle sailed over the crowd and smashed into a man who went down bleeding from a serious head wound. More missiles followed, bottles, bricks, bluestone metal, whatever came to hand as the crowd went crazy. Jagged pieces of glass flew in all directions and, the Argus reported, within minutes scores of people were bleeding, pools of blood glistening on the road and footpaths. My God, this is Australia, one returned soldier was heard to say. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A small group of inebriated sailors tried to hold back the crowd outside the landmark Leviathan clothing store. These sailors swung metal stands to hold back the horde, now estimated at some 12,000 people. One man, James Lobley, a 50-year-old farmer, was hit in the head, fell down and was dragged off by the crowd. Later, he'd be found unconscious in a gutter and taken to Melbourne Hospital, where he died some weeks later. Outside the Leviathan, the sailors couldn't hold back the mob. A man rushed forward and used an axe to shatter one of the store's plate glass windows. Looters jumped into this wrecked display and began to calmly throw goods to the crowd. One of the Leviathan's proprietors appeared and pleaded with the looters. How can this help you, he cried. This loss falls on me. The mob's answer was to pelt him with eggs as more bricks and bottles smashed the rest of the Leviathan's windows. The sailors, meanwhile, fought all comers with the Herald's photographer perched on a nearby veranda capturing an astounding photo of this brawl. As the fight continued, one naval man was hit by a bottle and went down bleeding. When his mates went to his aid, the crowd closed in and began to beat the men. Just when it seemed that they'd be killed, the mob's focus turned to a nearby jewellery store. Smash it in! The jewellery store window was shattered and every item in the display was stolen. More jewellery and clothing shops were targeted, with one thief's hand nearly severed at the wrist because he reached through jagged glass to snatch loot. There were also moments of mordant humour as looters read aloud advertising slogans that suddenly seemed like exhortations to crime. Don't wear a shabby hat, said one sign. So the larrikins smashed a window and ensured every member of their gang had new headwear, taking care to try on various hats for fit 
and for colour. All goods must be cleared, read another notice, and a rain of missiles on plate glass followed by grabbing hands ensured that was the case. Burke Street was strewn with tons of broken glass along with empty cigar boxes and cigarette cartons, empty jewellery drawers and cases. Display dummies that had been stripped of clothes were among this debris, looking at first glance like naked corpses. Melbourne had the appearance of a metropolis raided by hostile aircraft, observed a Herald reporter. At 7pm, 30 minutes after the looting began, 40 pensioner police and country constables assembled at the Russell Street barracks. A sub-inspector gave them their orders. Go to the corner of Burke and Swanston Streets. Keep together, and when you hit, hit hard. This squad marched down Burke Street, and near the corner of Swanston Street, a well-dressed woman stepped from the pavement and knocked a constable's helmet from his head. The crowd roared its approval, and the baton-swinging cops rushed the mob, whose members scattered. The most vivid description of the riots is found in Alan Marshall's 1962 memoir, This is the Grass, which followed from his landmark autobiography, I Can Jump Puddles. Then aged 21 and using crutches to walk, the aspiring writer had witnessed Friday night's riot, but been drawn back to the city on Saturday night by the prospect of more spectacle. Yet, it almost got him killed. He wrote, The mass began moving in a slow, convulsive fashion up Swanston Street, seemingly with a sinister purpose of its own, a purpose that had no relation to the object of the struggling men that comprised it. It circled slowly round an axis of intense action, a vortex spiked with flailing arms that threw out on its perimeter a debris of staggering men clutching their bellies, men snorting blood from bowed heads. It sucked in unmarked men to replenish its losses. It engulfed the special constables who had raced to meet it and whose truncheons flashed up and down in a frenzy of hitting before they too were tossed aside. It moved beneath a canopy of sound, swears, roars and yells, and a strange, horrible gasping. The people were like a thick crop, every stem of which swayed to a gust. We were packed so tightly together it was impossible for me to fall as a tree falls. The danger was in collapsing like a sack in the cylinder of space I was occupying. I knew I would be trampled if that happened. Though the mob controlled Burke Street and dozens of stores were being raided with impunity, not all proprietors were helpless. Mr William Dunkling protected his Burke Street jewellery store by waving his revolver while his employees aimed rifles at rioters, who smartly backed away to ransack other undefended shops. On nearby Spring Street, at the Golden Sweetery Confectionery Store, Proprietor Miss Evelyn Binns and her two sisters sheltered a pair of specials. Come on, if you dare, and wreck the place, shouted Evelyn Binns to the mob who demanded she hand over the constables. 300 men and youths set about smashing her store windows, stealing the stock and trying to break through the front door to get at their quarry. Seeing they were opposed only by three defiant women, shame swept over this masculine mob, who backed away with several red-faced looters even returning boxes of chocolates and jars of lollies to the shattered window displays. The sheltering specials escaped through a rear door. Tragically, on Swanston Street, Patrick Gallagher, 42, was hit by a car and fractured his skull when he hit the road. 
he was taken to Melbourne Hospital but died soon after. At the request of the government, the managers of Burke Street's theatres and picture shows asked men in the audience to volunteer as special constables. Some 200 responded just at Hoyt's pictures. But cinemas also saw one of the riot's ugliest incidents when 1,000 people tried to force their way into the Britannia and Melbourne theatres which stood next to the Leviathan. Police fired shots over the heads of the crowd. That sent people into a panic and they stampeded, falling against shop windows which shattered while others were trampled underfoot. Meanwhile, smaller bands of thugs succeeded in forcing their way into the cinemas. But seeing nothing more exciting than terrified patrons and movies flickering on the silver screen, these mobs soon surged out and on to more lucrative targets. At 8pm in Burke Street, it was pandemonium as constables tried to fight their way through crowds as missiles rained down on them. A constable staggered, hit in the head. Seeing red, he went after his attacker in the mob. Thud after thud cleared a space about him, reported the Argus. Every blow of the baton sent a shudder through those who heard it. The constable's comrades followed and the crowd panicked, men and women going down screaming as they were pummeled with batons. Senior Constable John Saltz, one of the spooks, was among the men on duty. He became the target of a hostile demonstration and found himself surrounded. Senior Constable Saltz was subjected to a rain of stones, sticks and bottles, with a missile smashing him in the temple and splitting his head. Bleeding, he walked to Melbourne Hospital, still being followed and harassed by the crowd. At this time, police didn't make serious attempts to arrest offenders. It was far too dangerous. Their numbers weren't sufficient, and on several occasions, arrested hooligans were forcibly freed by their mates. On Saturday night, with this violence unfolding, the Victorian Police Association urged their striking members to go back to work. But the plea fell on deaf ears. Of the 636 striking police, only two were entitled to pensions. The men didn't have any incentive to go back to work because the Premier had made it clear that not one of them would be reinstated. The government was also at pains to make clear to the population that it didn't consider this an industrial dispute or a class fight and that rich and poor alike were victims of mutineering police and thugs. Inherent in such a statement was the clear fear that what was happening on Melbourne streets might metastasise into something far more revolutionary than a riot. To help head off any such outcome, the special constables were put under the command of not the Chief Commissioner, but great war hero General Sir John Monash and other Australian military leaders. With the central city block of Burke Street thoroughly plundered, hundreds of looters descended on virgin territory in Elizabeth Street, stripping stores for seven minutes before 60 cops arrived with batons swinging, hunting the fleeing mob who smashed yet more windows as they escaped. But by 9.30pm, the ever-growing number of specials was helping to turn the tide. The forces of law and order now comprised some 50 plainclothes men, 200 uniformed police and some 200 specials. Working together, Police and specials systematically swept Russell, Flinders, Elizabeth and Burke streets, breaking looters into small groups and arresting them or driving them off. Batons were used freely and with great enthusiasm against offenders and anyone else who got in the way. On numerous occasions, overzealous specials had to be restrained by the police they were supporting. 
Some of the wounded larrikins, who were nicknamed Bucks by the police, were arrested and taken to Melbourne's city watch house. Others who'd been knocked out were carried away by their friends or taken to Melbourne Hospital, whose doctors and nurses were struggling to cope with hundreds of people suffering head injuries and broken bones. We gave the Bucks the hiding of their lives tonight, boasted one constable. They'll be sore for a week. I think I saw and cracked half the Bucks I know. While the police and specials were laying into larrikins, the chaos also presented an opportunity to a band of organised criminals. In Little Collins Street, around 10pm, a trio of well-dressed crooks smashed the window of a sporting depot and pushed a young boy through the hole so he could hand out a haul of revolvers, rifles, knives and torches. These cool-headed crims got away clean with their dangerous haul. But half an hour later, when looters smashed another of the store's windows, they were met by a staff member firing a gun loaded with blanks. Realising they weren't in danger, the crowd surged at the man just as four cops arrived, swinging their batons. In the words of the Sun newspaper, the police were hitting their way right and left to leave a trail of fallen men behind. But far worse was taking place on the corner of City Road, where William Spain, a returned serviceman and railway worker in his 30s, was attacked by three thugs outside popular attraction Worth's Circus. In full view of dozens of witnesses, William Spain was beaten senseless with a beer bottle before being robbed. He died in a little rookery beneath a tree, covered in his own blood. While it came too late for William Spain, by 10.30pm, the police and specials had gained the upper hand in the battle to control Melbourne. Patrol cars sped through the streets, their running boards packed with cops, headlamps lighting up the shadows. Any group of people was promptly broken up. By 11pm, Melbourne watch house cells were packed, and every few minutes constables arrived with yet more men and women bearing signs of being roughed up for resisting arrest. In the city, one of the last stands of lawlessness occurred just before midnight beneath the Flinders Street clocks, where a group of inebriated young women danced and drank to the music of two bagpipe players. While these flappers danced, their hooligan boyfriends fought each other, with passers-by joining in the fisticuffs. But a charge of police scattered these floozies, thugs and punters. By 1am, the city was clear the air filled with the tinkle of glass as cleaners swept the streets and the banging made by proprietors erecting wooden barricades outside their stores. Sunday dawned to reports that the riot had seen 78 city shops suffer some £50,000 in damages. Three people were dead, 400 were injured and 55 people were under arrest. Despite falling rain, 100,000 people came into the city from the suburbs that Sunday to see the ruination for themselves. But the size of this crowd threatened another night of anarchy. While the state government had been caught out by the events of the past 48 hours, it now finally acted decisively to prevent further violence. To encourage the crowds to return home and make it harder for more people to enter the city as darkness fell, Cabinet decreed all trams stop by 6pm and all trains cease an hour later. But Victoria's leaders conceded that they couldn't guarantee the protection of Commonwealth buildings. So the federal government, then still based in Melbourne, ordered the armed forces to protect the city, 
and show its citizens that further rioting might be met with deadly force. All Army, Air Force and Navy leaves were cancelled, with men ordered to report to their bases and ships. A detachment of 200 men from Queenscliff Garrison Artillery and Engineers arrived at Flinders Street, each man carrying a rifle fitted with a bayonet and issued with 200 rounds of ammunition. The soldiers marched over the Prince's Bridge to Victoria Barracks, where machine guns were also being held in readiness. Soldiers and sailors guarded the banks, the treasury, government house and other public buildings. On Sunday afternoon, Burke and Swanston Street was quiet, but hundreds of people swarmed into Russell Street near the police headquarters. There, for about three hours, they surged at and were repulsed by a strong force of police and specials. Rains of bottles and blue metal were met with charges and the vigorous application of batons. On Sunday night, a detachment of former Australian light horsemen, now volunteering to be mounted specials, rode into the city over the Prince's Bridge. Their arrival was reported as having a profound effect on the crowd. These were heroes who'd fought at Gallipoli, Beersheba and the Western Front against the Turks and the Germans. Now they were being deployed in Melbourne against Australians. Nevertheless, at 7pm, a crowd tried their luck, gathering at Burke and Swanston Streets, only to be broken up by a charge of mounted light horsemen. Men and women hid in doorways, bashed out with batons. There were also skirmishes on Exhibition Street and in inner-city Fitzroy. As the night wore on, mounted police, motor patrols and hordes of specials, who now numbered more than 2,000, crisscrossed the city constantly to break up smaller crowds. By late Sunday, the city was again under control, though there would be sporadic episodes of violence over the coming week, including an incident in which six police suffered minor injuries from a shotgun blast. The Melbourne Cup went off without incident, thanks to the heavy presence of police and specials and the government's decision to close all hotels for the day. On Monday morning, Melbourne's newspapers contain some of the most vivid headlines, stories and editorials in Australia's history. But the tabloid Sun News Pictorial outdid all of them. Its front page was given over to photos of the riot. The headline? Running like rabbits from a charge of special constables. An interior headline read, When Melbourne made a shameful and tragic orgy of night. Yet another Sun headline screamed, Witches' Sabbath outdid continental kind, our unleashed scum, city preyed on by brawling bullies, Australia's worst episode, mounted forces beat them back. The Sun's editorial put it this way, Saturday night's riot is the worst demonstration of utter lawlessness ever recorded in Australian history and has evoked the horror of every decent citizen. The state government was criticised for not protecting public safety or private property. Following the Friday night riot, the Sun argued, authorities should have stopped trams and trains on Saturday to prevent crowds coming into the city. They should also have closed hotels to minimise drunkenness and use the specials and military to protect property. The government's failure showed 
How easily men could be dominated by the scum of the underworld when the sworn defender of public rights and property no longer acted as a protective buffer. This line, that the worst offenders were known crooks and those of the embryo criminal class, was repeated by other newspapers. While there's no doubt that previous offenders were involved and that some got away without being arrested, the majority of those taken into custody, charged and then sentenced to up to six months jail were ordinary young men and women without criminal records who had simply succumbed to mass hysteria. In 1924, a royal commission chaired by General Sir John Monash was held into the riots, though witnesses called and evidence presented was so limited in scope that it protected politicians from criticism. Chief Commissioner Nicholson was taken to task for his role in issuing orders that had so clearly aggravated the situation. But his ill health meant he could only testify for an hour a day. And other key players who could have shed light on what really happened didn't testify before the Royal Commission. Premier Harry Lawson wasn't even called. More inexplicably, neither was former Constable William Brooks. Meanwhile, Inspector Thomas Kane couldn't give evidence because he died less than two weeks after the riots. Most stunningly, what the Royal Commission did reveal was that on the initial night of the strike, Chief Commissioner Nicholson had ordered that the spooks be permanently withdrawn and the men reassigned to other duties. For reasons never explained, this information wasn't communicated to Constable Brooks and his men. Unknown to the strikers, their single demand had been met, and all the death and destruction that followed could have been avoided. Though Constable William Brooks's actions instigated the strike, he appears to have taken no active part in the violence on Melbourne streets. In the only book devoted to the police strike, 1998's Days of Violence, written by retired Victorian police officers Gavin Brown and Robert Haldane, it was said that for the rest of his life, William Brooks remained disappointed by how his attempt to improve police conditions had turned out so badly. Though William Brooks tried to get on with his life, the years to come were marked by great personal tragedy. In March 1924, his son Eric died at the age of two. Soon after, William, his wife Mary and their daughter Alice moved to the country town of Hay in New South Wales, where William worked as a waterbore contractor and later as a night watchman. In 1927, the couple had another son who they also named Eric. Their daughter Alice died in 1933 at the age of 15. The second son that they'd named Eric died two years later at the age of 10. William and Mary moved back to Victoria and he passed away in Ballarat in November 1943. She died two years later. While he'd apparently suffered ill health during the Royal Commission, Alexander Nicholson outlived everyone, dying in 1960 in Frankston at the ripe old age of 97. Despite the unprecedented chaos that engulfed Melbourne for three days, the November 1923 police strike and riot eventually faded from popular memory. And from the very start, the Commonwealth government wanted it forgotten, acting quickly to prohibit the export of any newsreel footage of the anarchy, 
lest the rest of the world see Australia's shame. But nearly a century later, the legacy of the strike lives on. Though not one of the 636 police strikers got their jobs back, their actions led to rank-and-file grievances being taken seriously and acted upon. Within a year, a police pension scheme was reinstated and constables received a pay rise along with clearer paths to promotion and increased annual leave. The spook system of surveillance was never tried again. While the spooks were gone, the specials were to remain on duty until the force was rebuilt. But before that could be achieved, Melbourne's police were to be tested by a shocking crime. We'll talk about that next time. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This podcast was written and produced by me in Katoomba, New South Wales, Australia, on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, share, tell your friends and head over to ForgottenAustralia.com for more episodes and more information. Please look out for my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is the story of Australia's forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. It's published by Hachette Australia in January 2019 and is available for pre-order wherever you get your books. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.